1: Yama and welcome to NITV Radio. Coming up in your program this Monday, the 20th of February, well, as applications open for scholarships for First Nations young people to participate in the New South Wales Youth Parliament, we spoke to a past participant in the program, Deadly Wiradjuri man Ethan Floyd, to tell us about his experience participating in the program and why First Nations young people should get involved in the New South Wales Youth Parliament. As you'll hear, Ethan says that participating in the New South Wales Youth Parliament provides a unique opportunity to present the community's concerns to sitting politicians for consideration. On NITV Radio Today, we also look into a just-signed memorandum of understanding between the Youth Indie Foundation and Charles Darwin University. As you'll hear, the agreement is slated to be a game-changer and enhance education outcomes for Yolngu people in East Arnhem Land, from primary school through to tertiary education and research. On NITV Radio today, we also explore the World Pride launched over the weekend in Sydney, a rainbow spectacle celebrating LGBTIQ plus community and culture. All these stories coming to you on NITV Radio after the latest news. Betrent Tungandaming. I am Betran Tungandami.
2: Australia Day 1972 saw the first Aboriginal embassy directed outside Parliament. The native Title Legislation must be amended.
3: And they've walked this land so many times before anybody came.
2: I am sorry.
1: In this bulletin, advocates of the Indigenous Voice to Parliament launch a week of action to educate Australians before the referendum. Higher education to undergo its broadest review in 15 years. And in sport, Tyler Wright defeats surfing reigning world champion. Advocates of the Indigenous Voice to Parliament have launched a week of action to help Australians understand the proposal and clarify its purpose. It comes as part of an effort to encourage community voices to be heard in discussions and shift the focus of community conversations away from politicians and media commentators. Director of From the Heart... Dean Parkin claims he wants Australians from all communities to be included in the reconciliation process of constitutional recognition. Mr. Parkin was heavily involved in the process that led to the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Treasurer Jim Chalmers has criticized the former coalition government's superannuation policy during a speech in Sydney. Mr Chalmers has described the previous government's approach as ideologically motivated and says it contributed to the loss of $36 billion in retirement savings. The Treasurer says the Albanese government will put forward a new model that aims to preserve savings and deliver income for a dignified retirement.
2: We'll try and end the super wars once and for all and make sure that the Future changes to the system are compatible with the main objective of super. And doing that requires us to embed superannuation's purpose into law.
1: Australia's highest emitting resources industries could transition to net zero if action is taken now, a new report has found. Climate Change Minister Chris Boyne will launch the final report in a series on industrial decarbonisation pathways on Tuesday. The report found most crucial to reaching net zero would be strong, effective and coordinated action from government, industry and finance. The research was collected over three years in collaboration with companies that represent around 25% of Australia's industrial emissions. Part of the plan to transition to net zero emissions is accelerating the development of and investment in renewable energy technologies. The report also outlines how the transition could also create more than 1.3 million jobs between 2025 and 2050. New South Wales' labour plans to, plans to transition to renewable energy will look to encourage the use of solar panels in the state. Labour leader Chris Mintz said a community battery plan would be dispatched by the Energy Security Corporation, Corpor- Corporation which is part of which his party wants to establish for investment in renewable energy. Mr Mintz said investment in community batteries would allow more homes with solar panels on their roofs to access battery technology.
2: We have to think of new ways of encouraging people to get solar panels on their roof. At the moment, that's about 26% of households, but this is a good way of getting that number up. It also makes a lot more sense. I think a lot of households would rather use energy that they're producing on their top of their house at night when obviously the sun isn't shining and they need access to energy.
1: Higher education will, this week, commence its broadest review in 15 years. This forms part of the Albanese government's broader commitment to reforming early education, schooling and higher education. Education Minister Jason Clare will meet with the Ministerial Reference Group for the first time on Wednesday. Professor Marco O'Kane A.O. will release a discussion paper at a university conference in Canberra. Minister Clare said one of the focus areas was on attracting more students into the teaching profession.
2: In the budget last year is funding of more than $50 million to fund 5,000 scholarships worth up to $40,000 to encourage some of our best and brightest to become teachers. I want young people bursting out of high school wanting to become teachers
1: rather than lawyers or bankers. And this financial incentive is one of the things that we can do to help. the the final report will be released in December New analysis has found that higher education workers have suffered up to $83.4 million worth of wage theft in the last three years. The National Tertiary Education Union report reveals that the actual money is almost suddenly higher, with at least three cases still ongoing or have no figure disclosed. National President of the Union, Dr Alison Burns, claims systemic wage theft has been baked into universities' business models models. models.
0: What's most alarming is this is just the tip of the iceberg. We think that this figure is conservative uh, and we know that over the coming weeks and months there'll be more uh, settlements regarding wage theft. We think within the next uh, three months or so, this figure will go over $90 million. The extent of wage theft across Australian universities is staggering and a damning indictment of management practices across our universities.
1: The report has called for action in three key areas, including criminalising wage theft, implementing effective casual conversion provisions to reduce insecure work, and conducting new parliamentary inquiries into university governance. Reports of family violence are spiking as New Zealand continues in the recovery stage of Cyclone Gabrielle. At least 11 people have died as a result of New Zealand's biggest storm in decades with widespread damage to infrastructure, property and business. Police Commissioner Andy Costa said while reports of dishonesty offences had decreased, there has been an increase in family harm reporting. Mr. Costa said the rise in family violence was not surprising given the challenges facing families in the region. As of Monday morning, police had received roughly 6,500 reports of missing New Zealanders, with 4,000 confirmed as safe. There are growing calls to ban engineered stone following links to an incurable lung disease likened to asbestosis. Silicosis is a lung disease mainly caused by inhaling silica, a mineral commonly found in certain types of rock or soil. Assistant Secretary of the Australian Council of Trade Unions, Liam O'Brien, says if governments don't act now, there will be 100,000 cases of silicosis and more than 11,000 cancers in the country. He says there needs to be protection for construction workers governments have had report after report warning about the risks of silicosis and other diseases
4: and the facts are clear we're on the cusp of another industrial epidemic one that would dwarf what we've seen in this country in relation to asbestos
1: there are calls for greater support for those affected by long COVID, with many who have experienced the condition feeling abandoned by the garment Chief Executive of the Barnett Institute, Brendan Crabb, told a parliamentary inquiry that future responses in how the country deals with COVID-19 should take into account those who have been dealing with long COVID. Long COVID is defined as when patients are still reporting symptoms or contracting new symptoms several months after their initial COVID-19 infection. It comes as today marks the start of the rollout for the fifth dose of the COVID vaccine. And to sport, Tyler Wright has beaten reigning world champion Stephanie Gilmore in the World Surf League All-Star quarterfinal. Wright now faces another Australian in the Final Four with Molly Picklum also advancing in the Sunday afternoon action. Two-time world champion Wright found the winning wave late in the heat, scoring a combined two-wave total of 12.17 at Hawaii's Sunset Beach. Right now has her eyes set on a victory after a runner-up performance at last week's Bilabong Pro at nearby Pipeline. And now having a look at the weather around the country this Monday afternoon, Broome mostly cloudy 30, Perth sunny 34, Adelaide much the same 35, Melbourne partly cloudy 24, Hobart showers 19, Albury-Wodonga sunny 34, Canberra mostly sunny 34, Wollongong cloud clearing 28, Sydney mostly sunny 30 degrees, Newcastle sunny as well 32, Brisbane a shower 02 29, Townsville a shower 02 as well at the top of 28, Kent Similar conditions 31 early springs a sunny day thirty six Darwin mostly cloudy thirty two and at twice island islands showers and the top of twenty-nine degrees and that is NITV Radio News
3: NITV Radio Monday Wednesday, Friday at 1pm or any time online.
1: I'm Petron Tungandami and you're listening to NITV Radio coming to you from Nam on the Colin Nation this Monday afternoon. Coming up next in the program, we explore a memorandum of understanding between the Youth Yindi and Charles Darwin, the Youth Yindi Foundation and Charles Darwin Uni- University seeking to improve education outcomes for young people in East Arnhem land. We also explore the World Pride Festival launched over the weekend in Sydney, a rainbow spectacle celebrating El- LGBTIQ plus community and culture, but first a deadly young man sharing his experience as a youth New South (music) Wales parliamentarian. Indigenous scholarships are now available for the Y New South Wales 2023 youth parliament and for the very first time, two Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people will be able to apply for a scholarship to represent their electorate in the wide New South Wales Youth Parliament Program. And I'm pleased to say I'm joined by Ethan Floyd, a past participant in the program, to explore the new development, the availability of two First Nations scholarships, and also to share his story about his experience as a youth parliamentarian. Ethan, welcome to NITV Radio. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Before we go into this uh, new program and uh, the availability of two scholarships, there hasn't been so many before, uh, tell us about your experience, your story, your journey yourself uh, as a youth parliamentarian.
4: First and foremost, I'm a Waradjuri Whale person, so my mob's from the central west regions of New South Wales. From there, I grew up on Wannarua land in Hunter Valley, and I went to school in Newcastle on Awapakal land, and now I'm living here in Redfern on the land of the Gadigal people, so... I'd like to pay respects to uh, the elders of all those lands for letting me leave my footsteps on their land uh, and, and helping me get to where I am today. So um, I think I, I like to think that I've come a long way, obviously both physically leaving footsteps in all those different countries, but uh, also personally being able to make space for myself uh, and, and trying to bring as many mobs as I can with me uh, on that journey. So uh, the Youth Parliament Program has been really, really important in that. Um, Personally, I'm massively dedicated to empowering mob and lifting up their voice and making sure that uh, they feel seen and heard because most of us don't, and and that's wrong. So the Youth parliament Program was incredibly attractive to me because, as an Aboriginal person, we're inherently political, and so to be able to have a platform to talk about uh, current issues in politics, in news and in communities, it's incredibly empowering and it's a really important thing uh, for First Nations young people.
1: So was it just an empowering process, a learning process? Uh, What else was there in uh, being part of uh, the uh, youth parliament?
4: Yeah, I think youth parliament has two really important aspects to it. So the first is learning about parliamentary processes um, and about activism and advocacy. So learning how to campaign on issues that are really important um, in youth parliament Uh, My focus for that year was uh, young Indigenous people in youth detention because it's probably the biggest issue facing black kids where I come from, where they're locked up uh, too often and over some of the most trivial things. So my job as a participant in the 2021 Youth Parliament uh, was to shine a light on that and make sure people, especially parliamentarians, uh, were hearing that message and understood that uh, change needs to be made in those areas. The second part was actually empowering youth voices. Um, which sort of goes hand in hand with that. So learning about the parliamentary process and how to sort of be enmeshed in that as a young person, um, how to make change from within, and then also advocacy and how to make change outside of those systems uh, and be a voice for your community. Um, That was my experience with Youth Parliament where I was able to be in Parliament House talking to parliamentarians and MPs and ministers about important issues and then take what they've said back to my community and talk to people in the grassroots about what ministers are really doing to make change for them.
1: Did the parliamentarians listen to you? Because uh, they s- seem to do their own thing. They don't listen to anyone, these people.
4: Yeah, that's a problem that I think a lot of young people are worried about, is we're making our voices heard and we're finding platforms, um, but are the people making decisions really listening? Um, I think not always, um, and that's something that we need to work to change. But definitely within the Youth Parliament Programme, because it's run by such a dedicated organisation, uh, the parliamentarians that are present at that program really are listening to uh, to young voices and are really dedicated to making sure that the issues we talk about are brought to the floor of Parliament. So a key part of the Youth Parliament program is our young people are dedicated uh, designated into committees uh, based on portfolios. So we have an Aboriginal Affairs portfolio. Uh, we have a women's affairs portfolio and then other, other, uh, other portfolios such as roads and transport, mental health, business and employment. Uh, these committees focus on specific issues within uh, their, their focus area. Uh, for me, I focused on youth detention and we wrote a full piece of legislation uh, talking about the implementation of cultural education in juvenile detention uh, to ensure that when young people leave juvenile detention, they have a, a platform and they have a path uh, back From criminal activity uh, and from sort of the disadvantage that pervades their communities. Uh, I then got to actually present that bill, uh, once it was debated in the the Youth Parliament program, uh, to Ben Franklin who's the Minister for uh, Regional Youth and Aboriginal Affairs. That was a really big opportunity for me to speak one-on-one with someone in the Parliament making real decisions that affect the lives of Aboriginal young people, Um, having that voice heard and bringing the issues that young people are facing in my area and in areas all across New South Wales uh, right up to the height of power.
1: And how did you get involved and uh, interested in uh, such a heavy topic? Of course, it's a big issue in the community, but uh, how did you get involved in this uh, particular really heavy topic?
4: Yeah, look, being an Aboriginal person, we see a lot of social issues uh, around us and a lot of disadvantage and a lot of discrimination. And particularly in my electorate uh, and the the places where I come from, young black kids are over-policed and they're over-represented in the juvenile detention system. Um, And that was something that was glaringly obvious to me from a young age, Um, hearing about cousins who'd gone to jail, hearing about uncles who'd gone to jail. And it was really disheartening to see that Uh, my young cousins and and, and brothers and sisters were having this graduation from juvenile detention straight into the adult uh, prison system, and they weren't really given a path back from that. So my focus there was to figure out how do we stop this right at the start and make sure that young people are not in that endless cycle of offending and re-offending, and how do we bring them out of that and show them a better path? So that's a big thing about young Indigenous people is we want to be shown... A, a better way or the right way. Um, that's what our elders are there for, but also that's what other young people are there for, to, to lift each other up. That's how I got involved in that issue. And then Youth Parliament came fairly naturally. Um, I think it was I think I heard about it through school. Um, they do outreach programs, the YMCA, in, in local high schools because the target age group for the program is 15 to 18 years old, so that uh, teenage young adult demographic. Um, I think through hearing about the program, I knew that this was something I wanted to be involved in and I knew that this would be a really effective platform to get a message out there and to make sure that vo- that my voice and the voices of young people in my community were heard. Post that, it was a pretty fairly it was a fairly straightforward process of applying for the program, being accepted and then progressing straight into the, the hectic debates and, and bill drafting that's involved with Youth Parliament.
1: Wow, it sounds that uh, you are really very passionate about this topic and very committed. But does uh, being part of uh, this program, does it not uh, impede a little bit on uh, your uh, academic or work life?
4: It definitely didn't for me. I think my circumstances were I had a really massive support network, um, both in school and in family and at the YMCA that helped me manage my studies because I did the program in 2021 when I was 17-18. I was actually completing my HSC that year. At the same time, I was meeting with these young people, drafting a piece of legislation and going to Parliament House and debating it in front of ministers. It was a very uh, intensive experience, but it was something that I was able to get through because of the really unique and the really strong support network that I had. And that's something that the YMCA is dedicated to, is making sure that when young people sign up for this program, it is a huge undertaking. It's also an important undertaking. But, of course, at the end of the day, nothing is more important than getting through your schoolwork and making sure that you're achieving and, and doing your best academically. The support network that's there ensures that young people, while they're, while they're away at camp at Parliament House, they're able to complete homework and they're able to work on work on schoolwork. Um, we also make sure that the camps, the residential camps that we uh, that we host, are in the school holiday period, so we're not taking uh, young people out of class time. And outside of that, uh, we offer academic support and also just a a wellbeing and counselling service uh, to make sure the young people aren't feeling too overwhelmed by the undertaking of Youth Parliament uh, and coaching them through that to make sure they're making the most of the the program at the YMCA and they're also making the most of their schooling at the same time.
1: You sound really committed and switched on. Did uh, participating in this program inspire you to maybe consider Korean politics? to actually make meaningful change, not only for your community, but also for the wider Australian community?
4: Politics is a route that I think a lot of Aboriginal people should be considering, um, including myself and including people in my community. Um, It's a great platform uh, to have your voice heard and to really advocate for issues and to make sure that people aren't neglecting our voices because they have been in the past and it's not turned out well for us. Honestly, I have no intentions of really going into politics anytime soon um, don't get me wrong, parliament and debating and the parliamentary processes, it, it's great fun and sometimes it can be hilariously entertaining but the important thing at the end of the day is making a difference and um, I think personally I can make more of a difference from the outside speaking to parliamentarians and ministers and organisations and, and yes, yeah, sometimes lighting a fire underneath those ministers when they aren't doing uh, enough and making sure that uh, they, they understand the issues that are before communities and they're able to effectively advocate for us. I think that real power comes from the grassroots, um, from the communities and from the local organisations that represent people. Um, We've got an enormous amount of power and an enormous amount of influence and and willpower as well, but we've got to be smart and and pointed in the right direction. And I think that direction is policy change, law reform, and empowering our young people and bolstering education uh, to make sure that when our young people who naturally are going to be the leaders of the future uh, at the community level, at the state level, and at the federal level. Um, I hope to see an Aboriginal Prime Minister in my lifetime. And the way we get there is by empowering young voices and really tapping into uh, the inspiration and the dedication and the drive and the motivation of young people because it's there. Um, There's so much potential in our young people and our young Indigenous people, um, but our job is to make sure that that is taken advantage of and they're able to tap into that.
1: And uh, again, you've kind of mentioned it uh, in the conversation, but maybe it would be really great to reiterate it. Uh, what would be the message you're sending to potential applicants to this uh, program? The
4: voices of Indigenous young people we haven't heard as often as I would have liked, and as we would have liked as an organisation at the YMCA uh, in the Youth Parliament program, and that's due to a number of reasons. But one of the primary reasons we've uh, we've figured out is. Uh, the financial costs associated with the program and that's where the scholarship comes in so youth parliament has costs associated with it it's generally around 600 dollars from my experience to participate in the program young people spend nine days at parliament house so that fees include their travel to and from parliament accommodations meals and any other sort of incidental costs that are associated in some cases participants are able to pay that for themselves Um, in some cases they're able to uh, secure sponsorships from local mps or community organizations but The young people and the young voices that we want to be hearing more of and that we need to be hearing more of don't necessarily have the means to cover that financial contribution. That's where we step in as the YMCA and we deliver this message to them that we know your voice is worth being heard and that the ideas you have are worth being listened to. So we provide that fee relief in the form of a scholarship that covers the program costs uh, to make sure our black kids are able to take full advantage of the opportunities that come their way, particularly coming to Parliament House and and yarning up about these issues. Um, My message to young people who are applying for the program um, and who are eligible to apply for this scholarship is I'm a big believer in the idea of nothing about us without us. That is that we can't enact policy, uh, we can't talk about issues, and we can't uh, enact legislation without consulting with Indigenous people. When it's happened in the past, when we've uh, made decisions for Indigenous people without our consent and without our, our consultation, it's ended pretty badly. So I think now going forward... We need more empowered young black kids in this space because that's where the consultation is and that's where the consultation should be. Uh, And that's where we're going to draw a lot of our knowledge, a lot of our inspiration, uh, and a lot of our direction from is young black kids who are informed on the issues of their community and are really passionate about making change and changing the world around them.
1: Uh, Since you're already politically engaged, uh, what's your view on The Voice?
4: On The Voice to Parliament, I'm a supporter. Um, I campaign for The Voice. I feel that there is a lot of rhetoric around the voice that can be sort of misconstrued. In some ways, it is a symbolic gesture, but in other ways, it's really a terrific legislative mechanism for change. Again, that tenet of nothing about us without us. We need a constitutionally enshrined advisory body to advise not just government, but the parliament. And that's something that I feel people overlook, is that The advice is given to all parliamentarians. There will be some who disagree with it, but there will be a lot of people who agree with it, and those people in the parliament will push for that change and will advocate for the advisory body and the decisions and the reports that they hand down. So I think we can't be muddied in this idea of it's just a symbolic gesture, it won't have any real power, because the power lies in people and the power lies in voice. And when people hear black voices... They can't turn away.
1: Ethan, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us on NITV Radio today. Thank
3: you so much. I've loved being here chatting with you. NITV Radio. Share our stories on Facebook.
1: Last Wednesday, February 15, the Uthindi Foundation and Charles Darwin University signed a Memorandum of Understanding that's expected to be a game changer for First Nations people in East Arnhem Land. To find out more, I caught up with uh, Denise Borden, Youth Indie Foundation CEO, and Professor Scott Bowman, CDU Vice-Chancellor. First, I asked the Youth Indie Foundation CEO to expand on how the MOU will advance Yolngu culture and make a meaningful impact.
3: The Youth Indie Foundation is incredibly excited to have signed an important uh, education memorandum of understanding with Charles Darwin University, our local Northern Territory University institution. For our region, it's a significant leap, considering that uh, not only have we been partners for quite some time, but we've sealed it formally this week. Um, A very respectful gathering this week took place in Nulamboy, in northeast Arnhem Land, and um, Together, we welcomed the, uh, the signing of the, the agreement to provide better educational outcomes for our region. That might sound you know, like you've seen heard something like that before, but in fact, this is quite a unique partnership. It's very much um, going to be a silk of curriculum, a suite of curriculum, which will be designed on the strengths of the Northeast Arnhem region. So the Yoshi Indi Foundation will initially engage with uh, a cultural authority here in our region, which sits across... 13 clan groups, you know, in northeast East Arnhem Land, the, the learning, the culture out in our region is incredibly significant. It's, it's quite healthy. It's very robust and active. And so we'll be ensuring that the local community will put forward the needs of theirs uh, to, so that we can build in a curriculum that will be very uniquely based around uh, that local community. Uh, no doubt the region is going to have to consider demographic shifts and the exit of Rio Tinto and then the ageing of the community, ageing infrastructure and no doubt a feasibility study will be able to guide that moving forward. But um, pretty much the Othi Indy Foundation's role is going to be ensuring those young voices are incorporated in the first instance in uh, those priorities of those regions across 13 clans. And that is the reason why Charles Darwin University are very keen to also engage with us on this because it will be very much a grassroots ground up approach to those curriculum designs scoping mechanisms so really thrilled uh, to be able to get to this point this year is um, going to be incredibly important we've already started listening to what is called the DILA council the 13 clan group representation across our clans here uh, which stretch into to uh, homelands and outstations and those senior figures have been very outspoken in in terms of what it is that they'd like to see for the next generation of children. You know, there are 60,000 years worth of learnings to be built into this project and this MOU will forge through that. But uh, it's obviously going to take a bit of time in terms of consultations, but we're not worried about that. We'll, we'll move through that together uh, in, in partnership. So I'm really looking forward to that.
1: Is this the first collaboration between uh, Charles Darwin University and the Yothu yindi Foundation, or this is just uh, building uh, on an existing collaboration?
3: Charles Darwin University and the Yothu yindi Foundation have previously collaborated. It has been mostly for the Gama Festival, but this new signing of an MOU signifies an improved state of providing education and training opportunities built upon and customised around the Yormul community in the first instance, Uh, our cultural authority really is incredibly significant because it stretches across 13 clan groups. And so that's why it sort of sets us apart. uh, uh, Obviously, the cultural learnings and traditional knowledge out this way is incredibly important. And those are the strengths of our community. And so we'll be designing and scoping out with our community how it is that we can build those modules into our learning mechanisms and whatever curricular design is required, it's going to be first initially built up by our grassroots. Now there's obviously uh, our region is significant in that um, there's so many things happening. It's a little like an energiser bunny. So there's lots of opportunities for us ahead, but we're really forging a relationship that's built upon better education for our VET tertiary institution out our way. Um, the Yothi Indi Foundation is obviously taking into consideration things such as the demographic shift, uh, Rio Tinto are exiting our region out our way we've got to consider things like our ageing population and demographic shifts. Um, we've got a very new uh, aged care facility out that way. We want to see more people and um, local organisations blending in together to ensure that we're working to the strengths of our communities and obviously things such as bilingual is incredibly important when we have our children um, as a first spoken Nyong'umata speaker. So really quite unique opportunity ahead. We're very excited to have uh, signed off on that agreement and um, we're fully committed to ensure that the next two years is going to see um, significant uh, activity in the region, communicating with our elders, communicating with local organisations, communicating with our obviously non-Indigenous, counterparts too and key stakeholders. So we're very proud about uh, signing this to MOU with Charles Darwin University and we look forward to seeing uh, a bigger, brighter future for the next generation.
1: That was uh, Denise Borden, Youth Indie Foundation CEO, talking about uh, a new memorandum of understanding between uh, her foundation and Charles Darwin University. Well, I put the same questions to Professor Scott Bowman, Vice Chancellor, Charles Darwin University. Together, we also explored how the university will deliver education outcomes for your new people.
4: Yeah, look,
2: it's two great Northern Territory institutions coming together, the Off the Indy Foundation and Charles Darwin University, to really work in East Arnhem Land and beyond uh, to really open up a lot of opportunities for people.
1: And how will uh, the CDU tailor uh, the program for your new people? Because uh, I gather the majority of the people there, English is only their second language.
2: English can be their third or fourth or even fifth language. So um, that's a a real issue, how we uh, look at uh, language, but probably more importantly, how we really take seriously this two-way learning process. So what we're saying is, you know, we've got to uh, really incorporate a lot of the traditional learning methods, the traditional languages, into the programs that we deliver. So that's really important.
1: You said that the MOU will be uh, enhancing the collaboration that you already have with uh, the all-new people, but in particular through the Gama Institute. Uh, will the institute be expanded? How will this affect the institute?
2: The Gama Institute is uh, an institute that the uh, Foundation is looking to, to build, uh, and that will be a new venture. Uh, for East Arnhem Land, and uh, because we're the university in the Northern Territory, we're looking to be uh, looking to see how we can be the major partner uh, with the India around that uh, that new institute, and that will be with degree education. But we're a dual sector university, so it'll also be TAFE uh, education as well.
1: The Gama Institute uh, supports students from primary school to secondary, all the way up to tertiary education. Uh, how will um, the CDU be involved in this?
2: Oh, look, well, we'd be uh, working with the off Foundation, really under their leadership, to see what they want us involved with. Uh, but we do all sorts of training at the university, from preschool training uh, right through to PhD training. So depending on what the Otha uh, Indy uh, Foundation and the Garma Institute wants, we can really offer all educational options uh, for the area. But it's not for us to come in and leave. That's got to be First Nations people that take the leadership. So, you know, we really look into the upper Indy Foundation. Uh, to give that leadership to the university so it's really exciting.
1: That was Scott Bowman, Vice-Chancellor Charles Darwin University talking about a new memorandum of understanding between his university and the Yotu Yindi Foundation. An agreement that will be a game changer in education outcomes for Yolngu people.
0: NITV Radio, share our stories on Facebook.
1: Welcome back. Now, as of uh, last uh, Friday, Sydney has been hosting thousands of people at the World Pride Festival, a rainbow spectacle celebrating LGBTIQ plus community and culture. It's the first time that the global event has been held in the Southern Hemisphere and it will light up the city for more than two weeks. Stephanie Cossetti reports.
0: It was 2019 when Sydney won the right to host World Pride, a global festival showcasing LGBTIQ culture and promoting equality. More than half a million people are expected to participate in hundreds of events when the city welcomes individuals from all backgrounds. And the Sydney gay and lesbian Mardi Gras' Albert Kruger says having the famous parade back on February 25th at Oxford Street marks the return to its spiritual home. It'll be the 45th anniversary of the Mardi Gras parade, a glowing spectacle that lights up the night with colour when participants strut down the street encouraging inclusion.
2: And of course, the parade is back on Oxford Street after COVID, so we're super excited. And it's three times larger than any Mardi Gras has been for the last few years, so really, really excited.
0: Mr Kruger says protests against discrimination and a celebration of the community have both played roles in progressing LGBTIQ rights. Sydney World Pride Chief Executive Kate Wickett says it's a party with purpose and the city has a responsibility as it also hosts a human rights conference. It's actually the world's
2: biggest LGBTQI conference with 1,500 people each and every day for that time. Um, There's even a wait list for that conference. So we've got civil society, corporates, community activists, sports people. Everyone from
0: around the world will be coming. Rainbow trams and trains will be the mode of transport for revelers. Arts and Tourism Minister Ben Franklin told the launch the team behind the event have shown commitment, passion and creativity.
2: This year's World Pride will be the biggest event since the Sydney Olympics in 2000. Um, this is going to bring people back to the city on a scale that we haven't seen for years and years and years. And after the three years that we've just had in terms of COVID and fires and floods and so on, I think everybody needs a bit of a party and that's exactly what World Pride's going to give them.
0: The 17-day event ends next month with the historic Pride March on Sydney Harbour Bridge. Stephanie Corsetti, SBS News.
3: Your community, your conversation. NITV Radio.
1: And, uh, yeah, before we part, because we're edging close to the end of the program, I have to just let you know that throughout the week, we'll bring you coverage of the World Pride, an event that has a very strong First Nations participation. Patron Tungandami here. I am Patron Tungandami, thanking you for your company this Monday afternoon. Till next time, bye for now. Yalu.